Luke, you can come up. I'm going to introduce you. Try not to embarrass you too much. Um, is that the right angle? So Luke uh, uh, is two years younger than me. Um, I know you can't tell because uh, I've aged so well. Um, but uh, we were at school together. Don't hold it against him. So he is an old Selbornian. Um, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, similar to me, I, didn't, I don't know at what stage Luke gave his life to Christ, but I was not aware that Luke was a Christ follower while he was at Selborne. And I don't think he was aware of me either. Um, but it has been wonderful, bro, to just see God blossom yeah, you. And uh, Luke has served at Sterling Presby as a youth pastor faithfully for many years. Served at Everyday People, so he's been in East London uh, through and through, and uh, has been in common ground for the last 10 years serving a church down there. And it is a wonderful privilege for us to have him from advance here today um, to serve our church. And uh, Luke, I know your heart is uh, for the Lord. You love him with all your heart. Might have come from some rough back- background, but God uses that. And uh, yeah, man, bless you. We're looking forward to it. We're, our hearts are wide open. Go Thanks so much, Mark. Hey, good morning, everybody. If I've never met you, my name is Luke, and it's a privilege to share a, myth, a message with you today around sexuality. If you, if you didn't read your church bulletin, or if you're new to church and you're a visitor, surprise, you picked a Sunday to come to church. Um, if you're a teenager and you're sitting next to your parents, probably what you want to do now is you want to just subtly go to the bathroom quickly and find another seat to come back to, Right? <laughs> You're going to hear some words probably that you've never heard in church. As Mark said, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, I'm more rough than I am diamond, okay? And, uh, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to take the gloves off a little bit in this area of sexuality. We have to because if I'm honest with you, I don't think our culture is playing fair with the gloves. And so uh, we need to come at this thing uh, as best we can. Um, I want to give some credit today before I jump in to some better minds than mine. I'm just a pastor. I'm not a professor. And uh, just like you, I'm trying to navigate this moment in our, in our culture, in sexuality as best I can. And I want to give some credit to a guy named John Mark Homer from Bridgetown Church, who uh, did some work on this, John Tyson, and a lady named Nancy Piercy. If you've never read Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, if you're a parent, I'd highly recommend you read this book. If you're a teenager, highly recommend you, you read this book. It's been very helpful uh, in my life as well. I, I bet you there's probably a mixed bag of responses to hearing we're talking about sexuality today. There'll be some in the church who are going, yes, this is so important. We have to talk about this, right? And others going, oh, do we really have to talk about sex in church? And the answer is, yes, we do. Our world is changing. Heck, our world has changed so much, so fast. Since 1960, the rate of change in terms of technology, in terms of media, in terms of globalization, the, the, the whole story, the world has changed so much. It's been shifting, and it's been shifting in particular with regards to this area of sexuality. And you and I as Christ followers have to try and navigate this moment with our holiness intact and try and live out the fullness of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And so, yes, it's important we have to talk about this topic of sexuality. Let me start by, by giving us five massive shifts that have happened with regards to the area of sexuality. Now, I'm not, let me just on the front end say, in this part of my talk, I'm not saying good or bad. I'm not trying to give us a morality in this section here. As much as I just want to help us see how how fast things have changed and how much they've changed in a short space of time. Are you ready? 
five shifts in the sexual landscape that probably many of us have seen in our lifetime. Number one, sex has been disconnected from childbearing. Sex has been disconnected from childbearing. In 1960, all contraceptives were introduced to the world. In other words, for, for most of church history before then, sorry, most of human history before then, it was nearly impossible to experience the pleasures of sex without the risk of massive responsibility. Okay? Except in that moment, suddenly, these two things which were inseparable became, uh, became uh, delineated from one another. They were separated. For the first time in history, you could experience the pleasures of sex without the risk of responsibility. This is a massive shift. Remember, I'm not saying right or wrong as much as just saying this has happened. It's happened fast. Number two, sex has become disconnected from marriage. Before the generation of people alive on the planet today, for the vast majority of people, regardless of faith, for most of history, generally speaking, sex was connected to marriage, right? That's what happened. Now, for the first time, sex has been separated from long-term commitment. And there's two implications I want to point to. There's been many other implications, but two implications. Number one, it's created incredible anxiety around sexuality. Hey, if you're new to church, you better get used to hearing the word sex a lot in church today. It's probably just today. I'm sure, next week you guys will carry on with other nice other words and whatever. But this is this is this is what we got today. The removal of sex from marriage, from long-term commitment, has led to a few implications. Number one, it's created incredible anxiety around sexuality. Science tells us that uh, it's helped us understand the role that hormones play when it comes to sex. Two hormones in particular: oxytocin and vasopressin. Scientists first learn about oxytocin because of the role that it plays in childbirth and in breastfeeding. It's a chemical that's released when a mother nurses her baby, and it stimulates an instinct for caring and nurturing. It's been dubbed the attachment hormone. Surprise, surprise, guess what scientists discover happens, or guess which hormone is released, particularly in women, although not exclusively in women, in men as well, when we have sex. It's this oxytocin, it's this attachment hormone that is released. Consequently, the desire that we have to attach to somebody when we have sex with them is not just an emotional thing, it's not just a soul thing, it's not just a spiritual thing, but it's actually a physiological thing that is happening within your body when you do that. Uh, the main neurochemical response in the lives of men is uh, vasopressin, which is structurally similar to oxytocin, has a similar emotional effect. Scientists also say that it stimulates bonding. In fact, vasopressin has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. And so what, we, what we've done is we've got these physiological realities that happen within our bodies. They're, they're woven literally into the fabric of your DNA that, that, that happen when we have sex. And when we uncouple sex from deep commitment, long-term relationship, and marriage, we're, we're literally going against even our physiology at, at, a, at a chemical level. The professor, uh, philosophy professor Anne Maloney from the U.S. says this, it's no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our state university's healthcare center are antidepressants and the birth control pill. Now, I'm not saying it's as simple and simplistic as that, but certainly for many, these things are linked. And the second implication in South Africa, in particular, is of the uncoupling of sex from marriage and commitment, is this epidemic of fatherlessness. In 2018, there was a census taken in our country. Western Cape scored the highest in terms of children at home with fathers, 56%. Eastern Cape, we scored the lowest, 25% of 
of children grow up with their fathers in their home. Which means that in South Africa, between 50 and 75% of children are going, growing up without their fathers at home. This is what happens when you unbundle and disconnect sex from marriage and commitment. Number three, sex has become disconnected from male-female relationships. Remember, I'm not talking right or wrong here. We spoke about this a lot more yesterday. In fact, we spoke about it for 90 minutes yesterday. If you were here, you'll remember. Um, this is still, though, very, very new. In fact, same-sex marriages were only legalized in South Africa in 2006. How about this? For those of you guys who are a little bit aware of American politics, Barack Obama in 2008 ran as the leader of the Democratic Party in the U.S. This is the more sort of liberal side of the U.S. political system. He ran in 2008, and part of his campaign was against same-sex marriages. That was just 15 years ago. It's hard to imagine that. It's not that long ago. These shifts are happening fast. What do I need to do here, bro? Stick your beard. Oh. oh. Thank you, Max. Beards don't work well. I'll just freeze. Oh. Pulled it off, eh? Anyway, yeah, a bit of waxing happening there. Number four, sex has been disconnected from love, relationship, and emotional connection. If you're a teenager or you're a young adult, you're experiencing this. Sex disconnected from love, relationships, and emotional connection. This is not true for all, but it's certainly true for many. And the thing is, it's increasing. Uh, it's the increasing trend in, our, in, in the world today. If you're older, this is called hookup culture. So when Mark said to me earlier, let me take you to the back to the microphone and hook you up. Um, that means different things to different people. Um, the rules of hookup culture are clear. You are not to become emotionally attached. There is no relationship. There is no commitment. There is no exclusivity. We're supposed to be able to just walk away from a sexual experience as if it never happened. And this is what we are teaching our young people. We are teaching our young people to disassociate their bodies sexually from who they are as whole persons and so and this is not now science this is not so much scientific as much as this was told to me by high schoolers in our church when we preach through this as a church that it is not uncommon for two high schoolers to have had sex with each other before they have kissed each other because kissing speaks more to intimacy and sex not so much just appetite and desire Researcher Donna Freitas, after interviewing hundreds of students, concluded that hookup culture, and I'm quoting, creates a drastic divide between physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. Amid the seemingly endless partying of America's college campuses lies a thick layer of melancholy, insecurity, and isolation that no one can seem to shake. College students have perfected an air of bravado about hookup culture. Though a great many of them privately wish for a world of romance, and dating. Students learn from media and their friends and even their parents that it's not sensible to have long-term relationships in college. College is a special time in life. They'll never get the chance to learn so much, meet so many people, and have as much fun again. Relationships restrict freedom, and they require care and upkeep and time, and uh, more time than anyone can afford to give during such an exciting period between adolescence and adulthood. 
They add pressure to already pressurized, overscheduled lives of today's students who, according to this ethos, should be focusing on their classes, their job prospects, and the opportunity to party as wildly as they can manage. They can always settle down later. Because they've been taught to believe that hookup culture is normal, that everyone is enjoying it, and that something is wrong with them if they don't enjoy it too. What could be better than sex without strings? Yet, in fact, many of them, both men and women, are not enjoying it at all. And while hookup sex is supposed to come with no strings attached, it nonetheless creates an enormous amount of stress and drama among participants. In fact, one writer said this, when sex is reduced to an exchange of pleasures, the other person's personality becomes a burden. I mean, the logic is sound when you think about that. Increasingly, we defer marriage because of our careers and because of our travel, but we still want to enjoy sex, except sex without any commitments. Rolling Stone magazine interviewed a student named Naomi about hookup culture, and she said this, it made people assume that they're two very distinct elements in a relationship, one emotional and one physical, and that they pretend like they are clean lines between them. Closer to home in South Africa, 2016 made popular the blesser and the blessy culture. Did you hear about that? The blesser, these, this is a form of transactional sex in which older men, the blessers, entice younger women, the blessies, through money and expensive gifts and sexual favors. Why is this such a big deal? I mean, here's the thing. This is not new. Right? People have been doing this for a long time. You see, here's the important thing. What has happened in the last few years is these shifts are pitched as moral progress. This is liberation from oppression. And people who hold views contrary to these are deemed as being evil and archaic and what is wrong with society. The last shift that's happened in the last kind of, uh, in this generation is this. Sex has been disconnected from people. The obvious example is depersonalized sex and pornography, where the viewer disconnects the subject's body from any interest that he has in he or she as a person. Where do we go from porn? It started with pictures and went to movies. Where to next? Well, the futurists tell us next is sex dolls and robots, things you never thought you'd hear in church. Eh? Futurists predict that in 10 years' time, robots will become more popular than porn. The first sex doll brothel was opened in Barcelona, Spain. A Forbes.com article says this about it. Sex with humans could soon be a thing of the past. The German magazine Spiegel wrote in an article about the future, the future of sex, by British mathematician and physicist Ian Pearson. He said uh, he draws a future in which robotic brothels and strip cubs with, with computer-controlled dances are normal. Today, friendships happen more and more through computers than face-to-face, and we are facing an epidemic of loneliness. It's changing the idea of what relationships fundamentally are. In Japan, they've been hardest hit, where in one, one third of people under the age of 30 in Japan have ever been on a date. One quarter of men say they are no longer romantically interested in women because they are going for virtual girlfriends and porn habits. The statistics tell us that young people are having less sex than ever. Part of you wants to go, yes! And the answer is no. Do you know why? 
They don't use porn. And none of them have got the social skills to flirt anymore. <laughs> it's the canary in the coal mine. Something has gone wrong as a society when it comes to sex and sexuality. There is so much pain. There is so much hurt. There is so much dysfunction. There's guilt. There's shame. There's regret. There's fear. There's anxiety. There's insecurity. And it's all because of sex and sexuality gone wrong. People sometimes say, what's the big deal about sex? It's just sex, isn't it? It's not like anybody gets hurt. Really? So anyone in this room maybe who hasn't been hurt from sex? Divorce, adultery, sex addiction, attachments, insecurity, body image insecurity. Our world has lost its mind when it comes to sex. We've uncoupled sex from family. We've uncoupled sex from relationships. Even we've uncoupled sex from people. At best, we're naive. And it, I, I, can't, I can't but see it any other way. Human beings, we are worse for it. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with your sexuality, I want you to know you are not alone. If you're here today when it comes to sexuality and you're looking for answers, there are many who are in the same place looking for answers. The one last thing I want to say about this is the church hasn't always got it right. The church hasn't always been on the right side of this one. Let me be clear on this. I'm not trying to stand up here and say Christianity has always nailed this thing. We haven't. I don't want to pretend that we haven't got egg on our face. I want to say I'm deeply embarrassed about some of the things that Christians have done and said when it comes to sex and sexuality. However, whilst that should make us humble when we grapple with the subject, we still need to be clear and have a position of conviction when it comes to these things. And so I want to endeavor as best I can to do that. The, today's talk is called The Story That You're Living In. Every one of us is living in a story. You and I live in a culture that is constantly telling us what to believe. It is, it is like um, Ian Kruger, my mate who's preaching here this evening. He has a beautiful metaphor for how to understand this. The last 30 years, all of this change that's happened is a bit like our world has been throwing puzzle pieces at you. Puzzle piece after puzzle piece after puzzle piece. This is who you are. This is not who you are. This is what you should do. Now you should be free. Do this, do this. And it's constantly just throwing these puzzle pieces at you. And, you, 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 and some of them make sense and some of them are all over Instagram and they, they get stuck on walls and follow your heart and be true to yourself and live your dreams and da, 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 da. constantly throwing these puzzle pieces at you. And, 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 and you get them and you, you're trying to make sense of them, what I want to try and do today, as best I can, is to present to you two clear puzzle boxes that are at play in our world. One, the puzzle box of secular culture, and, and I want to try and detangle it today from the, from the worldview that Christ puts to us. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look today at the story that you're living in. Every one of us lives in a story in your mind about who you believe you are. Who is God? Who are you? What does it mean to be human? How, how do we interact with one another as human beings? And we're going to look at these two different stories. One in our culture. And one that we see in Christ. And I wouldn't be surprised if for many of us as Christ followers, we'll start to realize how some of these things have slipped into the story that you're living in. And I'm hoping to be able to to show us which puzzle pieces we just need to reject altogether and, and how the others fit together. Am I, am I flapping around? Sorry, guys. I can't even put a microphone on properly. It's, it's my little ears. It's my small ears. Anyway, we are right. Um, 
As Christians, what do we believe? Let's start here. As Christians, we believe that all of us are broken, not a single one of us. No, no human being is born perfect. We're all broken, but Jesus came into the world as a human being. He came in a physical body. And among other things, Jesus came to show us what it means to be human. He came to redeem humanity. And, and among other things is to show us what it looks like to live in the fullness of humanity. We're going to look now at one of Jesus' teachings around sexuality. It's a teaching that focuses specifically on divorce and remarriage. But I, but I want us to kind of zoom back a little bit and to ask the question, what is the theology, what is the worldview that we see Jesus holds that when he comes to this issue or question of sexuality that he draws from to answer it. Behind Jesus' answers is a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing how human beings connect to God, a way of seeing who human beings are and how we relate to one another. And Jesus' perspective, Jesus' story that he's living in informs his response to this issue of marriage and divorce. And we can apply it more generally to all aspects of our sexuality. So you're going to open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 19. We're going upstream from morality. We're going to try and look past right and wrong to, to the theology that, 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 that makes these right and wrong things true. Am I more than just matter? Am I more than mass? Very crudely, meat. Or do I have a soul? Do I have a spirit? Does my physical body matter? Does what I do with my physical body matter? Does it matter to God? Does it matter to me? Does it matter to other people? Let's take a look together. Matthew chapter 19, we read from verse 1 to 6. We'll read it slowly together. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed Jesus there and he healed their sick. Just worth stopping here. When Jesus was healing the sick, this wasn't just like a, a magic trick that he used to pull out to draw a crowd. When Jesus healed the sick, what he was doing is he was, he was, he was reaching almost into the future for the world that he would create, the world to come. When Christ returns and he puts everything to right and he creates a new heaven and a new earth, when Jesus is healing people here in this moment in the present, what he's in a sense doing is he's reaching into the future to pull from that world into this world now to give us a glimpse of what it looks like to see human beings redeemed and whole and living in the fullness. He's showing us what our bodies will be like then in the present when he heals. That's what healings are. He's pointing to a restored creation that his own resurrection was a kind of prototype of. Verse 3, some Pharisees came and they tried to trap him with the question. So it's a trick question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Notice they come to Jesus with a moral question. Should he, should, should he be allowed to? Can he do this? Is it right? Is it wrong? And look how Jesus responds to this question of morality. Verse 4, haven't you read the scriptures? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's go to the, let's go to the Bible. And it's in a sense like Jesus elevates the authority of the scriptures and he says, let's come under them together. And he answers it. For they record that from the beginning, Jesus, Jesus looks back to something in, in the Genesis, in Genesis. From the beginning, God made them male and female. 
And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united and the two become one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Do you see the way Jesus relates to the Scriptures? Do you see the way Jesus looks back to original design and quotes back from Genesis as He pulls it into this situation? Let's take a look at Jesus' worldview, but we're going to start by looking at the secular worldview. And I want to contrast 10 things about our secular worldview and 10 things about Christ's worldview. Notice how Jesus takes them back. God made them male and female. He recognizes there's more going on here than just morality. More than can I do this or can I not do this. But, but Jesus takes them back to understand who you fundamentally are as a human being in the created order. And then, therefore, how we live. He takes them back to Genesis. For Jesus, our sexual practices stem from an understanding of what it means to be human. What it means to be created by God. And, and, and who other human beings are. Are you ready? Can we jump in? <clears throat> Can we jump into these two stories? The story that you're living in, let's look at the secular story. Let's jump. Number one, in the secular story, human beings are highly evolved animals. We're here because of nothing other than luck or chance. In other words, to be human is apes with time and chance on our side. There's no design. There's no purpose. In the words of the prophets, when I was growing up, the bloodhound gang you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's, you remember the song. We've gone far enough in church, probably we've pushed it already. Okay, so, to be human is just highly evolved animals. Number two, human nature, well, it just is what it is. Nothing in particular, it's just, there's no meaning, there's no purpose to the human body. All that we have is what we've gained from evolution in order to further the species. It's meaningless, and it's all random. Number three, male and female, these are just physiological differences to the plumbing, right? That's all that it is, nothing more. Number four, gender is a social construct. You've heard some of these things before. Gender is a social construct. Gender is imaginary. In fact, it's often been uh, said to have been developed by the patriarchy to oppress women, right? These are puzzle pieces that are being flung at you as you do life. Number five, sex, it's just play for grown-ups. It's about a biological need for release, which is why Nancy Piercy says in her book, um, Love Thy Body, sex education courses typically focus solely on the physical dimension, on body parts, on health risks, on avoiding pregnancy, and the mechanics of sex. They do not teach us how to form and maintain relationships. That stuff's not that important. Number six, love is just a feeling of happiness that you get from being with another person. There is nothing permanent about love. It's a feeling, it's a desire, and therefore it is fleeting. Number seven, marriage is also a social construct. It's not natural. You don't see marriage in nature. In fact, marriage can be oppressive because it gets in the way of our ability to, to be free, to explore, to, be, to discover who we really are. And if we can explore and we can be free, then and only then can we be happy. And so marriage gets in the way of that. If monogamy is not natural, and if, if monogamy makes you happy, then do it. If it stops making you happy, stop doing it. Just end it and move on. Number eight, authority in the Bible. Well, the Bible, it's got some good ideas. 
but it's kind of anti-sex and it's quite outdated. It's quite oppressive. And like anything that's oppressive that limits our freedoms, our freedom to be yourself and to be happy, it should be rejected. You see, because authority is not found outside of yourself. Authority is found inside of yourself. As you, as you look inside yourself to discover your truth. And you must be true to your truth that lives inside of you. Relationships hold, hold no purpose outside of your own personal happiness. And when they stop making you happy, move on, leave, leave him, leave her, leave them. You are your only authority. Nothing should limit you from living your truth. You should do whatever makes you happy. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Don't let anything get in the way of you doing this. You've heard this before, hey? It's amazing how it can kind of like creep into our worldviews though, hey? Number nine, the body. The body is nothing but matter. And as such, it doesn't really matter at all. Your body doesn't mean anything. It's just a tool that you use in life. And you can use it as you please. Speaking about the body, the Catholic writer, a former lesbian, Melinda Selmus, says this. You can do anything you want with it, anything that you like. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can use and exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. Number 10, meaning and purpose. There is no real meaning in life, no creator, no design, and therefore no purpose. So the best you can do is create your own meaning, create your own identity, look within yourself, discover who you are, and then project that out onto the world and try and convince others to affirm your identity. If they don't, reject them. We don't really need God, who's pretty much a dead weight slowing us down from progress as a society, because all we need is happiness. I bet you you've heard some of this before. It's a story that we hear all over our modern culture, but it's not always broadcasted to you in such clear terms like this. It's broadcast subtly through Hollywood, through Disney, through Netflix, through sitcoms, through music videos, through song lyrics, through magazine covers, and even through legislation. It's the kind of stuff that's happening subtly all around you. David Foster Wallace, the the late atheist who was giving a lecture at university in America to a group of university students, tells the story of two young goldfish swimming along one day. And uh, along comes an older goldfish who swims up to them and he says, how's the water, boys? At which point the one young goldfish looks at the other young goldfish a little bit weirdly and then they swim off. And eventually the young goldfish says to his mate, what the heck is water? The idea being... It's all they've known their whole lives. You've lived in it all day, subtly around you, shaping you. But you, you, don't, you. You don't objectively know what it is anymore. And it creeps into your mind and how you think and how you live. So much of what we assume to be true is just a story you're living in. Nancy Piercy says the most powerful worldviews are the ones we absorb without even knowing it. They're the ideas that nobody talks about the assumptions we pick up almost by osmosis. But friends, I want to say to you today, it is just a story. It is just a way of connecting the data points in life and bringing them together to create a sense of meaning. It is not the only story, and it's certainly not the same one that Christ was living through. It's worth asking the question, 
Is it working? It's quite new, admittedly, so it's hard to tell, but what we can say with certainty is it's certainly not working for a heck of a lot of people. We're only 50 or 60 years into it, and the signs are that it's not working. Certainly, human beings have never been more lonely than they've been right now. You know that in Britain in the last 10 years, they have instituted a minister of loneliness. You look at me like, it's true. Because, because there's an epidemic of loneliness. Certainly, we've never seen anxiety like we've seen to, in, in, in these years as well. All these things are, are symptoms of a world that's kind of gone wonky. Is there another story? Is there a true, truer story? Let's look at the story that Jesus reflects to us in this passage of Matthew 19 that we looked at today. Are oh, you okay with the microphone still? I'll keep fiddling with it every now and again. Just... Give me a strange look, Mac, when it's appropriate. Number one, human beings. Human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. What separates us from animals is more than just IQ and finger dexterity. To be a human being is to be made in the image of God. Human beings have a soul, they have a spirit, and as such they carry a worth and a dignity To be human is to be creation, not just coincidence. As one woman reflected, she said said, um, when she held her baby for the first time, she experienced this. She experienced the sacredness of a human being. she She said, I realized when I held my baby for the first time, I loved her far more than evolution ever would require. David Brooks, the political commentator in the U.S., he says this. He says, there's a piece of you that has no shape, it has no size, it has no color, it has no weight. But it gives you infinite dignity and value. Rich and successful people don't have more of it than less successful people. Slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of another person's soul. Rape is not just an attack on a bunch of physical molecules. It's an attempt to insult another person's very soul. And it's, and it's the soul, what does it do? It yearns for connection. It yearns for righteousness. The heart yearns for fusion with another. And the soul yearns for righteousness. To be human is to be created in the image of God. There is something sacred about a human being that is different than a Jack Russell or a penguin or a pangolin or whatever else you want to put in there. Number two, human nature. We bear the image of God, which is good, but every one of us is bent. Every single one of our sexualities has been bent and distorted. All of our orientations are out of whack. None of us are the way we were created to be. And deep down you know this because you long to be more. There's a part of you that longs to be more. Every year we start our New Year's resolutions, hey? And we're going to do it. Because we long to be more than what, there's a sense in which we're not the way we should be. We're not, we, we are, we long to be more than what we are. Number three, male and female in sex. Your maleness and your femaleness is from God and it is good. In fact, it's blessed. We spoke about this a lot yesterday. We spoke about, however, the pain and the struggle of those who feel their physiology and their psychology are not aligned. This is very real. And as a church, 
We should be the most empathetic people on the planet to those who experience this disconnect. If that's you, I want to say to you that you live in a society at the moment where there are those who have extremely strong agendas that are pressurizing you to do things in a hurry, very quickly, that are irreversible. And I would love this kind of community to be the kind of place where you can bring the tension of the disconnect between my physiology and my psychology and that tension and that pain and that difficulty to people who you can trust, who can help you navigate this and work out, not under pressure to do this in a hurry. So to be able to work that out. And church, I want to put to you, this is a point of pain, not for... Not for many, but certainly for many individuals in our society. And this needs to be a place where people can wrestle with this tension and learn what it looks like to bring our lives into, into, into alignment with Christ. Number four, men and women are equal, yet different. We forget very often that feminism was started by followers of Jesus who were trying to correct genuine wrongs in our society. Gender by design comes with roles, it comes with responsibilities. It is men and women as a team that were given the cultural mandate to fill the world with the image of God. It is not good for man to be alone, nor is it good for a woman to be alone. We are 100% equal, yet we are different, and we need each other in our differences. Number, number five, sex is God's good idea. Sex is God's good idea. We do not dismiss it as trivial. It's not just play for grown-ups. Sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed by a man and a woman who have been inseparably joined together in marriage. Friends, God created the orgasm. It's true. I know you probably never thought you'd hear that. Yeah, you did hear that. It was God himself who created this thing. It's good to be enjoyed by his children in the context in which he gives it to us to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Nancy Piercy says, if we're ever tempted to think that sex is corrupt or dirty, we need to remind ourselves it was God who created sex in the first place. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely permanently, exclusively to you. It's an extraordinary thing. Christians have a far higher view of sex than our culture. It's more than one body part going into another body part. It is the mingling of souls. It is two people becoming one flesh. We saw in that passage. You doing okay? Number six. I think that was probably the scariest part of it. I think I don't Number six, love. Love is much more than an emotion or a desire or a feeling. Love is not lust. Love is a decision of my will to delight myself in someone other than myself. Love is a decision of my will to delight myself in another, to will their good above my own, even at a cost to myself. I realized when I first fell in love with Lauren, we've been married for 16 years. Um, when, I think it's, it's, it's 16 years. 
I realized when I first fell in love with Lauren, if I can be real honest, what I thought was love was more the feeling I felt because of her. Just think about it a little bit. I loved how I felt more than I, because of her, more than I loved her. Some of you can relate to that, hey? I loved how I felt inside of me. Ah, I feel so nice because of you. I, it wasn't necessarily her that I loved. I loved how I felt. Just profoundly selfish, actually. But actually, discovering that love is a decision. It's, it's an act of my will to put her above myself, to, 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 to delight in her, to... to, to to be willing to sacrifice to see her flourish, even at my own expense. It's, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus in heaven, lacking nothing, us miserably on earth, having nothing, and then Him giving it all up in order to rescue us and restore us and bring us back home. Love is something deeper and more selfless and far more pure. Number seven, marriage. Marriage is not a contract that I opt out of or into when I'm no longer happy. I saw this in my church, the church I'm a part of. One day a husband sat down with his wife and he said, are you happy? I'm not happy. Are you happy? I'm not happy. Let's end this thing. It's a covenant. It's a vow that you make before God and before your community to love another person again and again, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. I'm going to keep pitching up. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to be there five years from now to love you and to serve you and, and to cherish you uh, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, as long as we both shall live. It's a covenant. And this covenant is intended to be a visual representation uh, or a visual image of the love that Christ has for the church. This union is about this union to us. So the purpose of marriage is not just happiness. That's a byproduct when we align our lives to God. The purpose of marriage is friendship. It's partnership. It's family. It's sexuality. It's spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, that, that, that there's probably no one on the planet that's going to influence the human being that I am becoming than, than my wife. That one of the tasks I have as a husband before Christ one day is that one day, in a, just follow me, the metaphor's broken, but the, tr the truth is truth. One day, in a sense, I'm going to present her to Christ. And hopefully she's more beautiful and more glorious and more like Him than she was when we first met because of the way in which I've loved her and endeavored to be like Christ to her. And she's done the same to me. The bar is not just, well, am I feeling happy? It's, am I, am I making you more holy? Am I, am I, are we friends, etc.? In marriage, we make one another more like Jesus. You can't hide your rubbish in marriage. You can be single and sinful all by yourself. No one knows, right? Then you get married. Heck, then you have kids. All the junk comes out, right? It does. You say, I was never like this before I met you. No, you were. There were just no witnesses, right? Marriage exposes. It's not because it's broken. That's what it's designed to do. 
And it's in that place of having the worst parts of us being exposed and still being loved that the worst of you would be in the light and you are still loved and accepted. It's glorious. It's, it's, it's this. Jesus knows the very worst about me. And yet he welcomes me. He doesn't leave me that way. It's a beautiful thing. All your rubbish comes out and yet we love each other through it. Yet, therefore, divorce... Well, divorce is anything but a clean break. It's the breaking of a covenant. It's the rupture of soul ties. It's the betrayal of trust. It's the hurt of children. It's the death of a marriage. And yes, there are times when a marriage does die, particularly through adultery without repentance and an unwillingness to change or abandonment, but it's still a death and we don't give up easily. Number eight, we must move quickly here. The Bible and authority. The Bible is our authority in life. It's where we come to for truth. It's where we take our coordinates for how we navigate our moment in life and in history. We bring our lives under the scriptures to see how we are meant to live as human beings. Number nine, your body. Your body is God's gift to you. It is good. It is from God. And it is imperfect. The older you get, the more you know this. I played, on, I played on Thursday, I played a dads and lads soccer match. Now, I run from the, the dads race is just an opportunity for a torn hamstring or calf. I know that, so I don't go near that thing. But I got suckered into a soccer match. I did trip and fall and squash a poor schoolboy. It was, uh, I was at full pace. I thought I could catch that ball and just, just nick it before the goalie got it and it was going to go in the top corner until I hit that patch of mud. And all of me at full pace hit that poor, poor boy. I was wearing this big bright red shirt. It was like this big red mess just swallowed him up. Oh, anyway, I'm still sore. We won. Your body is God's gift to you, but it is, it is not perfect. We are embodied beings. This is so important, guys. As Christ follows, you are an embodied being. Your body is a fundamental part of who you are. It is more than just a tool. It is a part of what makes you, you. It's, it's why Jesus came in a body. Jesus died in a body. Jesus was resurrected in a body. And ultimately, when you live in eternity with him, you will live in a body. You, to be a Christ follower is to be an embodied being. You will receive a resurrection body one day. And so, so just because your body is imperfect now does not mean it is not a precious part of who you are and what you do with it matters profoundly. And number 10, the overall meaning of life. Meaning is not found within ourselves. Meaning is found outside of ourselves. Meaning is not even found in our own individualistic pursuit of happiness. Meaning is found in our connection to God, in our connection to others. It's in the love of God and it's in being loved by God. It's in loving others and being loved by others. In a sense, you could say it's, it's all about love, yes, but not love in the way of our culture. Love in the New Testament sense. Meaning is found in belonging when you belong to God and you belong to others. And although in our culture we're allergic to that because it sounds possessive, in another sense, it's beautiful to belong and to be home. You have meaning. 
And you don't get that when you shirk off all constraints in case something better comes up because you don't want to commit to anything so you can make the most of that. You, you get meaning when you're willing to commit to others, to belong, and to build a life with them. The first story is very different than the second. As we land, let me ask you, what story are you living in? What story are you living in? Jesus would end his teachings often or begin them by saying, the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he would say, repent and believe. To repent simply means this. It's a Greek word, metanoia. It means to rethink, to understand something anew. And then because you've understood something anew, to live differently. And I, I want to call us today to just to acknowledge this incessant worldview that's constantly being put upon us and to learn to discern, to, to reject. I had the privilege of being in, um, in the UK last year and I went to the M&M store. Do you know that some of the most prime real estate on the planet, the most expensive in Leicester Square in London, there is a store devoted exclusively to M&Ms. We're talking four stories of M&Ms. Every kind of M, you know what an M&M is? Like a Smartie, you know? Every kind of M&M you can ever imagine. We're talking uh, like wall to wall. It's just like tubes of M&Ms. Like, and all you have is this little like cup, right? And so I've got these three children back home in South Africa. I've got four stories of M&Ms, and they are red ones, blue ones, black ones, brown ones. They are red and blue ones. Red and, I mean, if you are OCD, this is like a field of M&M dreams for you, right? There are fudge ones. There are caramel ones. There are no peanut butter ones because you can only get those in America because the peanut butter um, is only made there. Now you know. But, but, but it is just M&Ms like you, you can ever believe, right? And, and you have this one cup. And I find myself going like this, going like this. I'll take, I'll take some of these. There was such discernment with what I allowed into that cup. And I wonder if you and me as people, we haven't just allowed a bunch of stuff through all the media and the social media and the Netflix and the and the and the, and the that we just consume. And there's some stuff that's taken root in there. And part of this morning is just giving it a label and going, no, oh, no. And, and, and to just freshly affirm what, should, what is in there as a Christ follower. Can I pray for us? Sorry, we did go a bit longer than anticipated. Jesus, I, I pray for Sterling. I thank you, Christ, that you came in a body, among other things, to show us what it means to be fully human. And that there is a, a, a story we can live in. There is a worldview. There's a belief system. There's a truth that you embodied that makes sense of our world. And Jesus, we want to freshly receive it today. We want to recognize that we live in a moment that is confusing when it comes to sex and sexuality. There is an incessant bombardment of 
of other puzzle pieces, of counter-truths. I want to give you just a second to just, as your eyes are closed, have you taken some of this on board? What, what is something that's crept into your heart, to your mind, to your worldview, that you need to pluck out? And what is the counter-truth in Christ's worldview? Jesus, I pray that we would be those who have a high view of our bodies. They're not perfect, but they matter, and they're a gift from you. I pray in particular for those who are, who've been hurt through this, Jesus. For those who experience a disconnect in their sexuality, in their gender, in their orientation. I pray that this community would be a safe space to work out what it means to give all of themselves to you in light of ultimately one day your full redemption of our lives. I pray that the church would be a community where relationships would flourish in your ways and in your wisdom, Lord Jesus. That those who've been hurt because of sex and sexuality would be able to discover fullness of life through your healing power and your truth and sense of this world, Jesus. We pray, Christ, that you would journey with us. That we would be a people in society who understand who we are in relation to you, who we are in relation to one another, and how we can live in this area of sex and sexuality. pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Church, I'm sure you can agree we've been blessed by um, a church in Cape Town this weekend. Um, Luke and Lauren, thank you so much for, um, they've sacrificed a lot to be here. Their daughter is uh, playing wonderful sports. It's all being sent through on WhatsApp. They're trying to follow it as best they can. But you've come to love us and support us. And Lauren, thank you for joining because when I've spent time with Luke on his own, he's much better when you're there. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also want to say, um, tonight we've got Ian uh, Kruger, also uh, one of the Common Ground Churches in Cape Town. It will be a different sermon. So, similar sermon, but with nuance. So, if you're sitting here going, will there be value in coming? We want to say welcome uh, and listen to Ian tonight. A reminder, and I can see, oh, they look like delicious muffins out there. So, if you're new-ish, you can go and enjoy a muffin. If you brought a new person, you can go and enjoy it. So, John James, hopefully you brought someone this time, then you can go and enjoy it. And, um, and the rest of us, we're having coffee under the tent. Let's go have a wonderful rest of our Sunday together, and we'll see you.